Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Welcome back to our class as we look at the book of 1 Thessalonians and we unpack what it means to live in Christ and to discover completeness in Jesus. If you remember, we talked about the city of Thessalonica. We talked about how important this city was, how big it was. It still is big even today in Greece. It's the second biggest city outside of Athens. And that is why Paul wanted to go here. He saw that there was a city filled with people who had never heard the gospel. And so we see this unpacked in Acts 17 as as Paul goes to plant a church in this space to go and convince the Jews and Greeks there that Jesus is the real king that they desire. And we see very quickly on that he would ultimately be rushed out of that city. He would go to Corinth, where he most likely wrote this letter and sent it back to the church. And the purpose of this letter is pretty simple, right? We talked about it. It's about waiting for King Jesus. Specifically, we said in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, we, we see what faith looks like in the waiting. Faith is, is effective, right? There's actual life change that begins to happen. Old habits start to die. Idol worship is replaced with God worship, and our lives begin to look different, which leads, of course, to the second aspect of what faith looks like. It's obvious. Faith is obvious. If no one notices your faith in God, you should be concerned with whether you really believe in him at all. The truth is that faith will not leave you the same. This was true of the Thessalonians who started to become known throughout the entire world for their devotion to Jesus. Their very lives were a trumpet sound declaring the gospel, declaring what God had done, that Jesus had died and rose again, and that this very same death and resurrection was starting to take place within the lives of the Thessalonians even as they waited for Jesus to finish the job. And today, we'll continue on into chapter two. We'll look at how faith is bold and how faith is binding. So let's look at how faith is bold. It says this in chapter two, verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what happened? What happened at Philippi? Why is Paul bringing this up? Well, Acts 16, we get the narrative. We get the story. And it says this, that Paul, Silas, probably Timothy, um, Luke, who wrote Acts, actually seems as though he's including himself in the narrative in this point. And he says that they were all going to a spot to pray in Philippi when all of a sudden this slave girl shows up who's possessed by some sort of spirit. And she starts shouting behind them, saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They've come to declare the way of salvation. And we don't really know if like this was sarcastic, like maybe she was like, hey, everybody, these guys think they know the way to God, right? Or we don't know if she was sincere. Like maybe she just, she couldn't help herself but proclaim the truth of what these guys were doing, even if it went against everything she actually believed. Nonetheless, it says that she followed them around for days, shouting these things, And Paul, it says, it actually says in the text that Paul just got annoyed. He got irritated by this girl. And so he finally turned around and he looked at her and he said, in the power, in the name of Jesus, leave. And the spirit left the girl. And all of a sudden, this causes an issue because what the spirit, what the slave girl did, and the spirit did through the slave girl, was was create profit for those that owned her. You see, that spirit was a fortune-telling spirit. It would look into the future and and predict certain things. And these men made a profit off of it. But now, that spirit's gone. 
And now their prophet's gone. And now some men are pretty angry. And so they begin to stir up a mob. And they begin to get Paul and his friends and they bring them and they beat them and they strip them of their clothes and they imprison them in, the, in, a, in a prison in Philippi. And what we begin to see is Paul is referencing this story. Paul's looking back saying, you know, you know what happened to us in this place. You know, especially because we came from Philippi to here. You see, when they were finally released from prison, when they found out that these were Roman citizens, when they found out that they had imprisoned people without due process, they left and went right to Thessalonica. And when they did, I'm sure they would hear the story of how they were treated. They probably would have seen the bruises, the marks, the beating that they would have taken. And Paul's saying, you know that when we came to you, we did so because we considered our own lives pointless unless we could simply proclaim the gospel to you. Why? Why would they do this? Because regardless of the fact that they were stripped and humiliated and beaten, unfairly imprisoned, they thought it worthwhile to proclaim the gospel because faith is bold. You see, it was their very willingness, it was their very willingness to die that the Thessalonians got to hear about life. And he continues on to see, we continue on to see over and over again through the life of Paul and even in the life of these Thessalonians that faith is bold. But he says also, he, in, in verse three, he continues on, he says this, that for our appeal, it, does, it doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, Paul's saying that the boldness of their faith is not to please them, right? They're not saying that they came to make a gain of applause or a profit or to show how morally superior they were. That is not in any shape of a way that categorizes why Paul is coming. No, they're saying that their only goal is simply to please God. And we don't really know like why, was, did something happen that made the people question their motives? Did, was there an event that took place? In my opinion, I think what Paul's doing is he's just trying to make it exceptionally clear that he's using a language, the seriousness of his work, that he's given up everything in hopes that they would come to hear the gospel, that his motive can never be questioned. And it actually leads to seeing authenticity in his work and what he's doing. And he's been through a lot, right? I mean, we understand that when we, we push and we push in, in our work and in our families and our relationships and our parenting, and we're, we want to see a specific outcome. And that's part of what's so beautiful about what Paul is doing here, because he's saying, I'm going to proclaim the gospel regardless of what I believe a successful outcome is. The only successful outcome is not what I gain, but what God gains. The only successful outcome is that God would see my activity, my work, and simply smile. His pleasure is good enough for me to endure even the hardest things in hopes that the gospel would be heard and responded to. And he continues on because this is the point that faith is bold. And because faith is bold, it leads to these challenging things, but also these beautiful ones. And we also see that faith is binding. It says in verse five, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is the witness, nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, 
because you had become very dear to us. See, Paul continues on showing he could have made demands. He had the right. He was an apostle. And now that word apostle, it means one that was sent. And typically in our minds, we think, well, there were only 12 apostles, and those were Jesus' best friends. Those were the ones that, that Jesus specifically um, you know, distinguished as apostles. But actually, what 1 Corinthians tells us is that there were many people who were apostles. You see, the requirements for being an apostle was simply this, that you saw God and you were commissioned by him. And Paul certainly fit into this description when he had his Damascus Road experience and when he became commissioned to try to reach the Gentiles, to try to bring them into the people of God. He was an apostle. He had authority, and he could have made demands based off of that authority, but he wasn't interested in that. He wasn't interested in showing his power and being some domineering tyrant. No, instead, he says he's much more like a mother. He's much more like a mother nursing a child, hoping that they would become those children that he could nurse now, what's interesting is that this idea of being nourished by milk is actually, it's, it must be a common image because it's used in 1 Peter and Hebrews 5. And what it typically is associated with is kind of these elementary teachings of the gospel, almost an entrance into gospel fundamentals. And Paul is saying here is that I came to you hoping to give you these gospel fundamentals that you would begin to respond to them in a, in a clear and decisive and meaningful way. Listen to this though, Paul's goal is not to share the gospel in and of itself, right? It's not just that they would hear the message, but that they would actually enjoy Paul as well. What he's trying to share is not just a proclamation of what God has done, but that that proclamation actually changes even our relationship because faith is binding. It binds us to God. It binds us to each other. And Paul's point here is that this this intimacy that is created in the church is done in order that God would receive glory through us being able to share our sorrows and joy together, share our accountability and encouragement. You see, Paul continues on in verse nine, he says this, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And now Paul continues on. He's describing himself in another parental role. Instead of as a mother this time, it's now as a father. He isn't just trying to gently bring us along into the fundamentals of the gospel. He's also trying to be a father and trying to exhort us and, and encourage us and correct us and affirm us in the ways in which we can walk all in a way that honors God, all in a way, in a manner that is worthy to God. Why? Because the king is coming. Because this is what faith looks like as we wait for the king and we enter into that kingdom and glory. Now notice here that Paul, he mentions his work. He says, remember my work. Now Acts 18 tells us that Paul was actually a tent maker. And there's kind of some debate about what all that would entail because if it was included like tanning leather and working with leather, that would tend to be something that went against a lot of what Jews considered acceptable. But I actually think it probably did. I think he probably worked with these things. He worked with his hands. And this was really arduous work to be able to, to, to cut and, and manufacture and, and create all of these things. It takes him days. And it was actually looked 
down upon because of the work, especially, I mean, by his Jew, by his Jewish friends, by the, by the Jewish community around him, but also simply by everyone because of how much work it took. And this is actually Paul's point. He says, I took on this work. I took on this work. I became an outcast. I became looked down upon, working with things that people had considered unclean before because I knew that I, if I could make a living for myself, I would, ha- I, would, I would not have to charge you anything. I could simply be free to go into all the places around the world and proclaim the gospel. I could take my work with me. I could work all the time that I needed to wherever I was and then proclaim the gospel. I wouldn't become a burden to you. And this is his entire point, is that faith is so binding that it will make us become selfless to those around us in hopes that they would see the gospel clearly, even at the expense of ourselves. Faith is binding. And Paul's authority here is established, again, not by the fact that he considers himself an apostle. His, his authority and, and his love and his compassion, his, everything that he's saying is rooted in the fact that he's willing to give up all the parts of himself to work as hard as possible, to not become a burden. And that is what establishes his willingness to care. That is what establishes really what he hopes, that their willingness to listen. And Paul continues on in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last." You see, lastly here, Paul shows that these aren't just people who have become spiritual children, right? He's not just a mother and father to them, but actually when people join the family of God, we become brothers and sisters. That we're all a part of the family of God in which God our Father is truly our parental figure. He continues on to show this. You see it clearly in verse 14 when he calls them brothers. He's trying to explain to them that in light of coming into the family of God, they're looking a lot like Paul. But more than this, he says, they're actually starting to look a lot like the Jews in Judea who have confessed Jesus as Christ. You see, he's trying to show that regardless of whether they considered themselves Jewish or Greek or Roman, whatever, they're no longer defined by race or nationality. He's saying, when you come into the family of God, you start to look like each other. And actually, what you really start to look like is Jesus. Because faith is binding. Now, I need to make a clarification because some people will read verses 14 through 16 and they will think, wow, Paul is not very fond of the Jewish people. But in fact, that is quite the opposite of what he's saying, right? He just said that there are Jews in Judea who are embodying the Christian faith. They have this faith in Jesus that is completely effective and obvious and bold, right? He's saying it's changing everything for them. And the point here is that Paul is saying there is a group of Jews who are still hostile to this message, right? Paul was one time one of them when his name was Saul, right? And he was persecuting the Christians. And he's saying that, that ultimately these people are going against, they're, they're standing in the way of salvation for many. They're trying to hinder the gospel message. And so they're opposing all mankind because of it. And Paul's saying that regardless of the fact that these men are doing this, Christ is still going to be victorious no matter what. 
But what he's not saying is that all Jews are doing this. He's saying that anyone who becomes hostile to the message of God, anybody who who becomes completely against the gospel and all that it entails is actually opposing all mankind and is deserving of wrath. But he's also saying something really interesting here about uh, the wrath of God being upon them now. What could this possibly mean, right? We know that they're waiting for King Jesus already. We know that when King Jesus comes, the wrath of God will come. The justice, the punishment of God, the judgment of God will come along with Jesus. So what does he mean when he says that the wrath of God has come upon them now? Well, I think that what Paul is referring to here is he actually mentions in Romans 1. If you remember in Romans 1, what he begins to say is that the wrath of God comes upon all of those who are unrighteous and all of those who suppress the truth. How? Paul describes it there that God is actually giving them up to their desires. He gives them up to the very things destroying themselves. And I believe that this this explains why it is the wrath has come upon them. They have become so hardened in heart that God has actually given them over to to this unwillingness to repent, to this unwillingness to change, to this unwillingness to believe. But what, and, and really, we, see, we even see it clearly in Acts 17, in this narrative when Paul goes to Thessalonica, right? The Thessalonians would know exactly what Paul's talking about because it was the Jews who finally got a hold of, of Paul, or I guess his friends in this case, and tried to bring him to the city officials, trying to get him out of the city, trying to hinder that message. But the wrath of God is coming upon them. But regardless of this, faith is binding because, I mean, we are becoming more and more integrated into the family of God, no matter who stands against the message. This is Paul's point. The Jews, I'm sorry, the Jews who have become Christians suffered at the hands of their fellow Jews. The Gentiles who have become Christians were suffering at the hands of their fellow Gentiles. But all of this means we are sharing in the suffering of Christ who suffered at the hands of his own creation. You see, regardless of what we may be suffering with, the circumstances that we may be in, we always will share that with each other, share the burden with each other, both the joys and the sorrow, and in hopes that this would begin to change us to look more and more like each other, and ultimately more and more like Jesus. So you see, when we're waiting on King Jesus in faith, it will be effective, it will be obvious, it will be bold, it will be binding. And next week, we will jump into chapter three as we look at what Paul says waiting in love looks like as we wait for that King Jesus. Have a great week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.